The Artist on Pack podcast may contain adult language. Listener discretion is devised. Hello and welcome. To Artist Home, the show where every month we get an intimate glimpse into the lives of the artists we love. I am your host, Aaron Roden, and in this episode, number seven of the Artist Home podcast, we'll be talking with venue owner Tia Matthews, currently owner of the Royal Room here in Seattle, about the legendary OK Hotel, which Tia and her husband, Steve Freeborn, owned and operated for over a decade right there on the Seattle waterfront. To say that Tia and Steve's OK Hotel was an integral part of the Seattle music scene back in the 1990s would be a vast understatement. Not only was this the place that bands like Queens of the Stone Age would play their very first show, or bands like Oasis would hold their after parties, but it was also the place, the spot, where this song was played in front of a live audience for the very first time. Pardon the audio quality on that, but that was grabbed from a VHS recording back in April of 1991, right before Nirvana left Seattle for L.A. to record that famous song. The OK Hotel became a hub for the community as well, and we wanted to illustrate this in this episode. So we put the word out on social media to send us your stories, which you did in droves. So thank you all who contributed to this. We will hear some of of these uh, stories here in a little bit, but first, let's talk with Tia. Enjoy. You know, we just have tended to kind of go from one thing to another, but, you know, as time goes on, you look back a little more, and as times change, you go, wow, that was kind of a special time in Seattle. I mean, not just musically, but just like, opportunity wise like the okay hotel would not be possible today in seattle you don't think so absolutely not absolutely not that's too expensive i mean we lived there i mean we kind of got a funky building with crazy landlords and we're able to like live there for free for a little while our landlords pretty much thought that that we would clean up their building because it was a mess. Like it was storage for 20 years. Like there were like pallets of like onion bags in there yeah. and like all things from all their, like they were slumlords. The Butnick family owned half a Pioneer Square and they just like, they were kind of hoarders and they just had all this stuff. So I really thought, I, th- I think they figured, oh, well, let these kids do their thing. They'll clean up the building and then they'll, you know, they'll <laughs> They're leave. hoping you move in and... <laughs> paint and you know make everything look nice oh my god it, it was a process though what do you remember like what so take me back a little bit like what what year was it when you and your now husband walked into that building we moved in a week after we got married okay and he's still my husband 
which is sort of a miracle after yeah. all these years. Hey, this is Steve Freeborn. DOK was a um, was a uh, was a large family of people that came about back when Pioneer Square had art studios and bands could rehearse, and, and the the city itself was probably about. 200,000 people less. Um, we moved in. Um, actually, um, my dad did some work for the landlord, and so he, so there was a space there. There was like one apartment fixed up there, and um, and he knew we wanted to do this, and so more or less as a wedding gift, my dad, I think he was living in this space and just sort of like gave us this living. I mean, he lived part-time in Arlington and part-time in the oh, city, okay. but... Uh, but he just gave us this apartment in the middle of the okay in this big uh, like abandoned building and yeah. a and like kind of hooked us up with the landlord to do that i mean it was sort of a wedding gift oddly enough <laughs> take this take this decrepit apartment we were all about it i love you honey <laughs> well you know my parents are old hippies and artists uh-huh. as well so you know they believed in the vision. Sure, sure. <laughs> I could, I, I dig that, man. That's cool. Yeah, that's way cool. Yeah, uh, to yeah. be able to be able to see like the potential in a building like that. That's underneath what you know for people who don't live in Seattle, underneath the viaduct. Yep. Which is this old double decker highway that runs through the waterfront. Right. And it's very noisy down there, and grimy and dirty. Yep. Oily. Yep. And, uh, and, <laughs> and the train used to run in front the train, of it at that time. Yeah. And then the trolley, right? Or the, the trolley still did. Train, yeah, yeah. The actual train oh, still right. ran in front there. That's right. And so when we used to do shows for a little while, um, like people would just like hop on the train and ride a few blocks. And then yeah. Yeah. Because it would have to slow down for like a mile before yeah. it hit the, hit the actual station right there. But yeah, it was kind of this dirty area, and I'm sure back in what what was it, '84 or something like that? No, when you guys it was moved like '80. I guess it was '87 when we officially oh, moved in there. Okay, was '87 we officially moved in there? Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So it was probably pretty, maybe a bit more dirty. Oh yeah, it was <laughs> nasty. It was nasty, and there was like, you know. You know, oddly enough, this this was before crack hit Seattle. Mm-hmm. So, but it was all the winos down there, and all like it was sort of like a different breed of like homeless kind of, you know, hobo life down there. Yeah. And there was like one guy who kind of like lived in the alley and watched out for us, and and um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we. So I don't know if you know this, but we threw shows. We lived there for two years and threw shows before we officially opened because it took us that long to get open because we had no money yeah. and it, the place was a wreck. Um, yeah, and in that time, I had a baby. And so our first child was born at the OK Hotel. Really? Yeah. This is Sally Johnson. And I was a booking agent at the OK Hotel back in the 90s. And actually, the first time I visited the um, OK Hotel was the day that her daughter, Ramona, was born. And if you don't know this story, Ramona was actually born in the OK Hotel upstairs. 
um, Tia went into labor very quickly, and little Ramona, she came, and um, I was lucky enough to go visit um, Tia and Steve and Ramona on her first day, Ramona's first day on this planet, and that was pretty cool. midwife and she was and she sort of I mean I wasn't really looking to have the baby there but I really hate hospitals and I was sort uh-huh. of leaning towards the home birth so yeah Ramona was born at the OK Hotel oh wow and so so we really so our our like you know homeless crazy wino man across in the corner he totally like he would tell us if there was like bad people in the neighborhood and I it was it was crazy down there it yeah. was And they were already building up the hotel and just so excited. And I'll just never forget, you know, I'd known Tia, Tia a long time at that point. I mean, we were in our 20s and she just said, um, you know, this is what this place is going to be. It's going to be this amazing place where artists and musicians can come and they can create, they can exchange ideas and gather. Oh, and by the way, there'll be really good food and drinks because we all really need that. So, you know, a lot of the OK story is the fact that it was all ages for years. Um, so a lot of bands went through there, a lot of artists went through, uh, both visual and a lot of readings went through there, a lot of, um, you know, theater and poetry and the, the whole gamut went through there. And so a lot of what made it famous, I think, was, you know, a few of the bands that had played there. But I think the most important part is the fact that it was a family. It was a family that ranged all the way from probably famous rock stars or whatever you call them uh, to, you know, your common neighborhood band. And there was no, we didn't stop anybody from playing there. We were a true uh, all-age venue, which brought a lot of uh, bands from New York and Los Angeles and England and, and places of you know that were larger than Seattle, but they really needed that that younger audience. So, and of course, the list of bands that played there is just incredible. But you know, I think the story mostly that I think of is the fact that it was a community of all the artists that I can think of that I still see all the time, and it was a it was a game changer for the whole music industry. Uh, because of that. It was kind of awful, but it was also um, when the art scene was really kind of at its best down there. Like, there's a lot of great things going on mm-hmm. down in Pioneer Square. It was sort of, you know, so it was a mixed bag. There was well, it was the hub, right? It wasn't... Yeah, it, it was the hub. It wasn't Capitol Hill. No, no. It was, it was Pioneer Square at that It time. was totally Pioneer right. Square, and there was... And a lot of really great artists were showing at that time. Mm-hmm. Artists that have gone on to be really successful were still showing in the neighborhood, still had their studios in the neighborhood. Um, so there was a great studio scene. Um, yeah, I traded art for, you know, bar tabs. Yeah. <laughs> I did because they, they all came to the place. OK for breakfast and coffee. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. So, wait, so what was the what was the idea? 
What was the, what was the, the impetus to you guys actually like, let's start a venue? You know, it wasn't let's start a venue. Or do we want to be surrounded by, by no, this? No, it was this idea. For one, I'm just going to tell you that when we first had this idea, I was 23. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my husband, like he played music and he would run sound for work. And I was an artist and we were like, you know let's just open this place where we can like rent out studio space and have a little coffee shop and have an outlet for it and have a little scene. And because we own the place, we won't have to hardly work at all. <laughs> and of course, sounds like a 23 year old. That had to be true. <laughs> and then we just kind of like, it just turned into this other thing. The whole music scene just kind of yeah. burst open. And then we were like, we were in it and we had a family, we had another child and we were like, okay, we have to really, we have to really do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, where we just have to, you know, this is what we do now. Yeah. We own a nightclub. Were you surprised when it, when it started taking on kind of a life of its own or were you prepared for it? We were, we were n- well, we were sort of prepared for it. We sort of weren't. What was more surprising was just having this, I mean, this Seattle music scene explode. Like, I, we knew all these people. Yeah. You know, I went to high school with half of these people. I've been going to live shows in Seattle since I was 15. And so that's what was surprising was having it blow up around us and go, wow, you know, yeah. just having the spotlight on Seattle and then well, did you see yourself yourselves as part of that though no no not a, not really I mean it just sort of like happened we were trying to just sort of keep up I guess in a uh-huh. way also yeah um yeah it was just I mean yeah you you do and you don't I mean looking back of course we we realized that we provided a space for for this bands to play and get good and you know, be what they are now, you know, and a lot of other people, a lot of other things. So, Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you had that, like we said, you know, Pioneer Square was kind of this hub of where there's still clubs down there too, like the Mint and, yeah. And, uh, is it the Mint? I I don't know. I never go anywhere anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but there are, uh, the Phoenix Underground was down there and and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So there were kind of a number of clubs in that area. Uh, in that downtown corridor, at I mean, the you time, had the, up the street, you had the Rock Candy and, yeah. and the King Cat Theater and yeah, and things like that too. Well, in so. the band, I mean, you know, the Central bands were playing the Central at oh, the, the time. Oh, the Central. Why did I call it the Mint? Yeah, yeah, no, the Central Tavern, and you know, we used to do before we were officially open at the OK Hotel, and we just lived there. We would throw shows. We would yeah. just sort of sh- throw these illegal, you know, just have a show. Um, like bands would come across the alley and I think, um, you know, camper van Beethoven wandered over uh-huh. after show after show at the central and, you know, people would just sort of wander across the alley and yeah. there would be another See what thing. the heck and was going on. Exactly. But you know, in those days we literally were like, okay, we're going to unscrew the plywood from the door so we can open up tonight. Yeah. Because we didn't even have a door when we first opened. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Really? We do have a picture of that. Yeah, yeah keep all those like old that. onion bags safe. <laughs> exactly. We donated those. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
So when did it when did it really start uh, kind of hitting home that this was this was something that you guys could actually do? Um, I don't. You know, I think it took a couple of years. It took a couple of years. It sort of took our commitment to just like really go. Okay, we're gonna do this until we make money. We got a family. We gotta like do this. It was just sort of like, you know, early on it was pretty scrappy, but then it was like, okay, this is work, and if we put our minds to it, it's all going to come together. Because we had a full restaurant too, you know, oh, we I didn't had know like that. Had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like we opened up at seven in the morning. For a while, we opened up like at six in the morning, so we get like longshoremen hanging uh-huh. out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so we just kind of had to knuckle down and go, okay let's get organized let's make this happen let's get some more people on board to help us and um i don't you know the timeline is sort of a blur you know we had little kids too so we just didn't like sleep for three years we just did like touch tag of like i go in in the morning and bake and cook and do breakfast and then steve would go in at night and well that's probably the one thing that (laughs) that i can't wrap my head around with like a schedule, like a, uh, somebody who puts together shows and owns a venue, especially so DIY, you know, the way that you guys were doing it. It's like, yeah, you have, you have small children. So basically you're up at, you know, 3 a.m. sometimes. Yep. And then you're also going to bed at 3 a.m. Yeah. Sometimes. Well, we had a so. little, we, we immediately had a lot of good people yeah. to help us or we would have completely lost our minds. <laughs> <laughs> We had a lot of great people uh, who have helped us, you know, helped us along over the years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it couldn't have been done without all of them for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you yeah. do you have, like, a, a moment that kind of stands out in your mind as being, like, one of the most memorable uh, either shows or, or circumstances or, or stories that that you could share with us? There's, uh, there's a few of them. I mean, there was... Um, God, there's like a, there's tons of them, but but one of them I have to say was uh, we had an MTV New Year's Eve party because uh, they did the I big remember. MTV show yeah. with Pearl Jam and Nirvana and um, like Lauren Hill, like it was a huge show across the street when it was still um, there was still a big warehouse across the street where mm-hmm. the old Alaska ferry was. And so they had like the pre-funk and all the like the pre-funk was at the OK Hotel right across the street and we catered it. And, you know, and it was it was it was kind of, you know, all these MTV people. And yeah, of course, like, yeah. we don't I don't even really know who half of these people are. I know who some of them are and I know the people I'm dealing with. Um, and it was uh, yeah, it was uh, it was weird to see. um it was weird to see the outside world sort of, um, sort of, you know, like there are people that were there that had like painted jeans and like this sort of like this, like, you know, fashion grunge wear. it was just like really weird to see Seattle emulated by outsiders. And I remember thinking that seeing with other bands that made it big as well. It's like, Wow, there are, you know, Seattle is being emulated by outsiders, and I'm not sure how I feel about this. Yeah. Yeah, this 
place became such an amazing location. I mean, I think of all the unique and amazing artists that had shows there. Freeze Undyne, um, you know, all of the cool designers and artists for um, in the rock scene at that time. And then, you know, I'll never forget some amazing shows there. Um, Built to Spill, Sage, um, and then, you know, it was such an interesting place um, and became sort of iconic in Seattle. So, you know, when there's this giant Oasis show in Seattle, the place they hosted their after-hours party was the OK Hotel because it was cool and interesting and indie. And, um, you know, th that led to really hilarious things like, you know, the Oasis brothers standing outside the OK Hotel getting carded by our door guy. And Tia and I having to go out there and tell the door guy to lay off, let the Oasis brothers in, and their whole entourage. There's so many great stories like that. My name is Jim Bennett. I moved to Seattle in 1995 in the fall. And um, part of my introduction to Seattle that fall was uh, the twin brother of a friend from the East Coast where I'd moved, took me to the OK Hotel right around Halloween, maybe on Halloween. And um, I remember walking into the building and it being fairly empty up front and him being really excited about seeing this show and me sort of being confused because there were just a couple of people in booths, if I remember correctly, and we just walked through to the back. And then you got into the performance space and everything changed. It was pretty full um, because it was Halloween. There were decorations hanging from the ceiling and it, uh, Bill Frizzell came out and just sort of came on stage, didn't really interact vocally, didn't really make eye contact, um, played the sort of quiet, mesmerizing music that he plays by himself, no band. Everybody sat down on the floor. I'm used to like theaters or clubs where there's either like rows of seats and balcony and whatnot, or just like a club and there's a stage and a bar and whatever. And here it's just, people just sort of sat on the floor and listened intently as Bill played and he, he finished and uh, everybody stood up. And then Hayter came out with um, Ben Shepard and I believe Matt Cameron from Soundgarden and just absolutely destroyed with no contact switch, with no introduction, people were flying up and down all around the room. The decorations that had been hanging from the ceiling were getting knocked down by people just jumping up and yanking on them or smashing them down. It was total mayhem. And it went just like on the, on the, at the drop of a hat, boom. It was an incredible introduction to the fact that I think there's no sort of, um, there's no need to have uh, uh, a polite um, wrap-up like at the end of a sitcom to, to try to uh, transition between styles in the Seattle music scene, you know? You can have one context and then a completely different context. On any given night, you can have any flavor that shows up, and there's just a million flavors available. But um, I have John to thank for introducing me to music in the Seattle music scene. You know, I think I think most of Washington took took uh, took a lot of ownership over that. Yeah, because I remember being you know sure. like a teenager. I've had this conversation many times too. Like, you know, being a teenager and being like, oh yeah, 
yeah, fuck those guys from Carolina. I don't like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. where'd you get your Doc Martens? Right, I right. got mine at the Martens store. Exactly. The viaduct, <laughs> sir. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, no, I, I, I totally get that. Yeah. And it's got to be weird. Like, uh, you know, you're watching your friends explode. Yeah. And, and having to kind of, like, navigate this new... I don't know, fame, for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah, but it's a weird... Okay, so there's also the Seattle attitude, which which is just like, oh, yeah, whatever, you <laughs> right, know? Right. And so, you know, we probably could have taken a more advantage of it, but we were oh, just I'm like... Oh, I'm sure you could have. I'm sure, but we had no idea. One, we were, like, super busy and, like, uh-huh. underslept continuously. Yeah. Um, so we definitely could have taken more advantage of it, but I don't know, just sort of, like kind of holding our own little circle of of i don't know comfort and like where everything came from i think served us well also oh sure you know yeah. well it made it more mysterious right it, <laughs> it was like more of a more of a closed circuit <laughs> it was you know i guess it felt pretty open it was pretty open but i also remember um you know kind of I kind of wanted it to be over, like the focus on on the, you know, Seattle, and you're right, it wasn't just Seattle, it was like Washington, you know, mm-hmm. you're from the peninsula, it was all over the place. Um, it sort of, it sort of stunted people's creativity for a little while, you know, oh, I think, and, yeah, I, yeah. and that was sort of, you know, as, you know, watching music, you know, the music that, that you know, became grunge, or like the music before that, where people just were doing creative things because, nobody was watching and there was nothing else to do, you know, to have that sort of, you know, it was hard to watch people sort of, you know, go, okay, there's going to be some label people here tonight. And label people showed up for everything, like yeah. a lot of unnecessary bands, Yeah, you know? And so, but everybody was like on guard. Everybody's <laughs> like, okay, this is our moment, you know? And, um, and so everybody was sort of started playing the same thing too, yeah, yeah, which was yeah. like, okay, what's the new thing, you know, right. let's check it up. And, and that ended up happening for sure. I mean, Seattle music kept growing, which is awesome. When you still had those little spikes of, you know, of weirdness all over the place. Like one of my favorite bands from, from the, uh, from the mid nineties was Gas Huffer. Oh, right. And nothing, yes. nothing around anywhere sounded like gas huffer man yeah you know yeah and that was i loved them i loved them and i wanted them to to be the most successful thing on the planet yes. but it never really happened because Tom Price was my didn't... high school boyfriend are you serious i am serious i we had went him to back here a couple years ago He's... for the other show i love that guy uh, we still love each other yeah he's awesome yeah wonderful yeah. man and uh but yeah, I mean, there were these little spikes, but, yeah. but those bands would always, like, they'd get picked up and then they'd get dropped. Right, right. You know, they'd get picked up and then they'd get dropped. Right. Because they didn't have, they couldn't produce that whole thing that everybody wanted them to be, which was Pearl Jam or Nirvana. Right, at that time. I think right. I think, I think that changed, you know. Um, but at that time, that is so true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's a shame because, you know, those were the people that were playing before, uh, you know, Pearl Jam. Like, you know, the people in those bands were like teenagers going to like U Men shows and oh, early, yeah. you know, that's where they got their chops was right. from, you know, that generation. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
Hey, this is Troy Nelson from KEXT. I moved to Seattle in late 1999, which was 75 years ago. And I moved to Seattle as an inspiring musician, wanting to uh, get out there and play songs. I was kind of more uh, into the singer-songwriter-y thing at the time. And so the first place that I saw was doing open mics was the OK Hotel, which I knew the name of that place because that's where, you know, Nirvana debuted Smells Like Teen Spirit. So I'm, I, I was like, I want to play at the place where that happened. And I went there for open mic, and it was just a cast of characters and such an eclectic mix of music. It was uh, such a, a, a wonderful introduction to Seattle. And that's where I met my lifelong and friend and one of my best friends, Brent Amaker, who at the time was known as Dorkweed. And I actually thought that that's just what he went by. Uh, I didn't know his real name at the time. So when I would introduce him to people, I would introduce him as Dorkweed. This is Brent Amaker, uh, playing a band called Brent Amaker and the Rodeo. When I first moved to Seattle in 1997, I didn't have any friends out here, and I was coming out here to restart my music career in some way. I was not connected to the scene at all, and uh, I met this uh, therapist who told me that I should start doing open mics, and I went to the OK Hotel because it's supposed to be a good open mic, and I did it every week, every Wednesday for uh, at least a year. And I can trace all my friendships that started in Seattle back there. I met this guy, Maurice Caldwell, who was uh, the host of the open mic. I met Jason Trachtenberg, who ended up moving to New York with the Trachtenberg family slideshow players. Uh, I met this dude, Kurt Lieber, who got signed to a major label with his band Bicycle, Capricorn Records. And Troy Nelson, who's a well-known DJ KEXP. Uh, so anyway, I made a lot of friends. It was really critical to... My new life, it was my home. I miss it, but uh, other homes were to be created. Seattle is my home. I'm proud to be here. Uh, fast forward a little bit, 2001, uh-huh. the Nisqually earthquake. Our last day of business was a Fat Tuesday that got shut down where there was a riot, there was a kid killed, and oh. our bartender called and said, what do we do? You know, it's just like, it's crazy. I was just like, lock, just go, just go home, you know, yeah, just leave. Yeah. And then the next day was an earthquake, so it was just like, okay, well, Painter Square is clearly going to hell, so. Yeah, we're out. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and getting something like a building retrofitted. Yeah, like, yeah. Was, was probably a pretty within devastating days, bill. Yeah, within days there was like these giant I-beams just holding in the front of the building. We could hardly, yeah. it, was, it wasn't easy to get in and out of the building and get our stuff out. They were just like, done, done. Yeah. I mean, it was yellow tagged and then it was red tagged. So. Right, right. Yeah. But I remember the earthquake. Uh, I was at my place in my house in Capitol Hill, and then I, the house started shaking. I thought it was a loud truck. I ran outside, and I could feel the ground. It wasn't necessarily shaking left and right. It was almost like a wave, like you were standing on an ocean. And I was obviously freaked out and panicked, started calling friends. And come to find out, it, uh, 
really destroyed the OK Hotel, which was really sad. A couple other buildings were destroyed, but and only a couple buildings were destroyed. Why did it have to be that one? I don't know, but it happened, and it was the end of an era. Did kind of all, you know, for pardon the pun, kind of come crumbling down. Literally. For that space. Right. What are you feeling when that happens? Like, is it is it like, uh, you know, were you crushed or or were you just I, like, I'm ready to kind of get out of this? Oh no, we were crushed. Yeah. We were we were like in despair. Like we were like. What are we've been doing this for 15 years? What are we like? I can't even like we couldn't imagine our lives without the OK Hotel. Like it was just like this is what we do, and we might have side projects and other things going on, but we we're like, this was sort of our like we felt like it was our life's work at that mm-hmm. time, you know? Yeah. Um, well, it was. <laughs> it was our life's work, exactly. Yeah. Um, but we were really fortunate in that very quickly one of our regulars. Um, hooked us up with Jerry Everard, who, you know, at the time, well, he he was one of the original owners of Crocodile and, and oh, okay. Moe's. Uh, and he had just bought with some other people the rendezvous and was they were looking for operating partners. And at the time I was like going, oh, I don't know if I have another nightclub in me. It's like, oh, just like, it's too much. But then I went, but the rendezvous... <laughs> I would do that at a heartbeat because it's such a golden little, it's such a sweet little place. So it had existed prior to that, right? Well, as a as a youngin, you don't you know? Yeah, I am. I hey hey, not gonna deny (laughs) it. The rendezvous, the rendezvous was like an old Seattle beloved dive. It'd been there since the twenties. It has been, you know, it's still the rendezvous, and it was there since the twenties. And it was like this old little. It was part of Seattle's film row. And so the little jewel box. So would theater. they? They would show films in the in the yeah, jewel box. Yeah, yeah, like promotional films for distribution, um, and yeah, they or they would show dailies during filming. Yeah. So there was a whole history of like, you know, movie stars coming down there to make an appearance to try and sell the film because this was before TV, and then like film well, how many, was king. how many people can fit in that little jewel like box? Like fifty. <laughs> It doesn't even it look. Depends. It doesn't look like that. I know, I know. Well, if you take the chairs out, you yeah, know, yeah. for some shows, yeah, I won't say how many people you can actually get in there. I hope no fire marshals are listening. Uh, right you know, we don't we don't know it anymore, so that's okay. Yeah, yeah. But that's I've never known the history of that place, and I've always yeah. been super curious because I because I couldn't. I mean, obviously, it's been you know a functioning space for a long long time well and it's got some history i mean then it was like a you know there's a cafe and then mm-hmm. there's like then there's a theater and for a while they um i mean i think it started out being sort of a nice place and then it ended up being the the theater was separate and it was like a porno theater of and then the next was. door was a bar yeah. and then i'm i want to say like th- probably starting the late 70s through the 80s I think it had the same owner and then it was just sort of like this dive bar with this beautiful little theater that anybody could do anything in for like 50 bucks. So yeah. before like before we had it like people would have 
like a poetry series or a film series or a punk rock show or a birthday party. And it's like the rendezvous. So you could literally do anything Yeah. and nobody cared. You know, it was just like a big drunk fest down there. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so pretty much anything could happen. And so, but a lot of amazing things happened there. And then it was very much under people's radar. Mm-hmm. Do you still love it? doing what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Like do, doing I, the, the being a venue owner and I, I love, you know what? I have way more help now and I've finally uh-huh. decided that I, I just can't be down there every night. And so, oh, sure. yeah. um, so I have a lot more help and a lot more management so I don't lose my mind. And it took me, it took me a really long time to realize that I could do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I have to say, I do love it. I do love it. I love having a place and I love, and I think we're pretty good at it. You know, I think you've done well. (laughs) Yeah. And I like the places that we have and I like seeing all these new musicians come up in the world and Mm -hmm. just, you know, a lot of magic happens down there. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's a tiny little crowd to see a lot of magic happen before things catch on and to be there for those moments is pretty great. And is that, would you say that that's kind of your favorite show? Be somewhere where there's like 15 people where you think you're seeing, you know, you no, know, I would you're way rather, like as a business owner, I'd special. definitely rather have more than 15 people there. No, I'm talking <laughs> about like personally. Yeah, yeah. No, but I like a small venue, club. But like, I, I like small venues. Yeah. Like, I've, like, I don't know if I could go see a stadium show anymore. I'm spoiled. I love a small venue. Uh-huh. And yeah, those are my favorite shows. But I don't, I, I don't, I like it when there's people there. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, even when I go someplace, it feels like, wow, this is, this something's happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I search those, those things out. <laughs> well, Tia, thank you so much for joining me. Yes. Today. My uh, pleasure. It was, act- it was, uh, it was a great honor to talk with you oh, about, well. uh, about the okay hotel. Cause like I said, it was legendary in my hometown and, uh, I never got to go. And so hearing it straight from the uh, from the person who started it is pretty special. Ah, uh, well, I was happy to do it. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs>
the depths of the Seattle music scene, and it was at the OK Hotel. And I really don't know that it could have happened anywhere else because it was uh, it was such a unique space, and um, and it felt sort of tucked away, out of the way uh, from from plain sight, but sort of hidden right there in plain sight at the same time. Um, anyway, I really appreciate the chance to tell the story. Hopefully, you can make use of some of this, and uh, thanks for the chance. Thanks. Bye. A big, massive thank you to Tia Matthews for taking the time to chat with us uh, during this episode. And to all of the people who contributed with their stories calling into the voicemail line, thank you so much. This has been one of the funnest episodes to put together, although the most labor-intensive. <laughs> also, I'd like to thank Phil O'Sullivan, Kevin Sir, Emily Harris, Chad Cliburn, and the rest of the Artist Home family for making this show possible. And, of course, Jace Krause of the band Friday Mile for providing our intro music. And to all of you who support us by listening to this program, thank you so much. If you would like to continue to support us and Artist Home and your other favorite podcasts, please go to iTunes to rate and review the show. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it would mean the world to us. We're going to end this show this month with... The song called Faithful by the band Great Grandpa off of the album Plastic Cough. I feel like this would be one of those bands that you would have seen at the OK Hotel. Although this is a newer album, uh, they are nonetheless a Seattle band. This is Faithful by Great Grandpa. And thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back next month. Have a good one, everyone.
Hi, my name is Drew Church. Um, I don't remember what band I was playing in back then, but uh, I opened a bar with Steve Freeborn and Tia called Hazelwood in 2005. I did that because I grew up going to the Oak Hotel and I loved that bar and it meant more to anything to me as far as what Seattle was and what it became. It was the first place that I felt comfortable and at home. That said, uh, I played a show there. I, I, I don't remember which band I was playing with, but um, we voted into the alley. And it's like, you know, that, that part of town, that's actually where uh, underneath the viaduct, uh, always been super gnarly. Um, but we loaded in and I think for whatever reason, uh, the, the van took off and I got left back in the alley and, uh, the door closed and I was stuck in the middle of this alley and I was banging on the door and then I stepped in human shit, which is okay. That's fine. And then I heard like lighters sparking all around me on both sides. And I realized that I was not alone. There was like, I don't know, 10, 12 people all smoking drugs in this pitch black alley with me with shit on my foot. And I had to go left or right to get out of there. Anyway, show sucked.